One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As we record this, it is the early hours of Thursday morning in Israel, and there is no extension to the ceasefire yet, though discussions are ongoing between the two sides in Qatar. However, over the past few days, we have seen this incredible pause in the fighting. Many Israeli hostages have been returned. (laughs) Palestinian prisoners have been released in exchange. And aid, food, medical supplies, even fuel has been able to get into Gaza. However, it's not all been good news. Hamas put out a statement claiming that the Bibas family, uh, this consists of that 10-month-old uh, baby boy, Kfir, his four-year-old brother, Ariel, and his mother, Shira, that the three of them had been killed in what uh, Hamas called uh, one of the Zionist bombing campaigns. So if this is what has been happening in a ceasefire, what happens when the fighting returns? Israel still wants to wipe out Hamas. And after this pause to get our people out, the fighting against Hamas will resume and we will continue our campaign until Hamas is destroyed. Hamas still wants to wipe out Israel. Israel is a country that has no place on our land. We must remove that country because it constitutes a political, security and military catastrophe to the Arab and Islamic nations. It must be finished. Today we hear from two Times journalists on either side of the border, one in Israel and one in Gaza. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, what's next for Gaza and Israel? I'm Richard Spencer. I'm correspondent for The Times based in Tel Aviv at the moment, and I've been here most of the time since the events of October the 7th. Richard, we're talking to you, well, just before midnight, your time in Tel Aviv. As things stand, um, what is the current situation? 
Well, things have been moving very fast and in a very unpredictable way all day. Uh, where we are now is that 10 more hostages have just been released, 10 more of these Israeli hostages in Gaza, which um, I think it's fair to say were overshadowed by this extraordinary statement from Hamas about the death of the Bibas family this family with the 10-month-old baby as well as a four-year-old boy of who, whose whereabouts there had been considerable concern. Because there'd been some confusion as to why they hadn't been released in some of the earlier batches of Israeli hostages, with one of them, as you say, being very young, one of them four, one of them 10 months old. Do we know why Hamas are saying that they are now dead? Yes, the family issued this extraordinary appeal on Tuesday saying, you know, where are our children? Where are these two young boys and their parents? Uh, the mother was last seen with the boys being taken off into captivity. And these are the two with the, with the red hair that people remember that picture. They certainly will. Yeah, very distinctive picture. Uh, the father was taken away separately. He had a head injury. And yet the family were saying, you know, we've seen all these other people released. There's been this big focus on the children and getting the young children out first. Why has there been no mention of Kafir Bibas, this little boy, this 10-month-old who was the youngest child mm. kidnapped on October the 7th? Suddenly out of the blue this afternoon, Hamas said they've been killed. They were killed in an Israeli airstrike. No explanation as to why this information was not released before, if it's true, and mm. certainly no verification. So, I mean, obviously the, the news itself, if true, is terrible, but also the uncertainty and the uh, unusual way this news was released has sort of left a, a cloud of apprehension over the whole process. Yes. And is that why, as we speak to you at, at midnight Israeli time, there still hasn't been another extension to the ceasefire and to the continuing swap of hostages for Palestinian prisoners? Because correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like this was all wrapped up earlier in the day when previous extensions have had. So, so why the delay now? Uh, I'm told by people close to the negotiations that a two-day ceasefire extension is on the cards uh, however, it still hasn't happened yet. And one reason that we're being told is that there is this problem with the lists of names that are being presented. Uh, and just explain when you say lists, just explain why that's important, because because that's how it's being agreed who's being released from each side, isn't it? Exactly. So at the moment, every day, Hamas gives a list of 10 people it proposes to release to Israel. Israel signs off, says, yes, those are the ones we want, and in return gives a list of 30 Palestinian prisoners. It will release to the Hamas side, and they say, yep, that's fine. And then it all goes ahead. Uh, for the last few days, since the beginning of this process, that's been kind of done on trust, that the, the ceasefire has been agreed for first four days and then another two days. And then the technical thing of signing off the names has been done on a day-by-day -day basis. Israel is moving towards a situation where it's saying, OK, we will just do the ceasefire on a day-by-day -day basis. You give us 10 names. If we approve the names, we won't bomb. If we don't approve the names, we'll start bombing again. This is the sort of discussion that's happening. Mm. Well, that sounds incredibly difficult for those families still waiting for answers and still waiting for, for news of their loved ones. Of course, we have had over the past few days people who have been able to be reunited with their family members who were who were taken hostage with that have we learned more about how some of these people were kept by Hamas 
Yeah, we've learned a lot about um, how they were kept, and it's kind of fairly mixed picture. I mean, one one thing that was quite interesting was we kind of assumed that they all the hostages would be held in tunnels, but it does seem that some of them were held above ground in in safe houses and apartments. Quite a few were taken originally to private homes. Perhaps it was the homes of the kidnappers. Who knows? and then gathered more centrally as the days went by. The hostage takers seemed quite well prepared. They had quite good food to start with, canned food and cheese and bread and and so on. But then as time went by, the food ran out. Um, one or two other hostages do seem to have been somewhat maltreated. There was a, a boy who turned 13 while he was in captivity who told his family that he was made to watch some of these gruesome sort of home videos that Hamas made of the days of the attack. And that was obviously quite upsetting for him. Yeah. How has it felt in Israel as all of these daily returns of people and and swaps of people have been coming through? Most people support the government's war in Gaza. They're not oblivious to the civilian suffering on the Palestinian side by any means, but they all say, you know, this is a threat to us, which we have to deal with once and for all. We've tried to live with Hamas ruling Gaza and that didn't work. So that operation does have support. But of course, there's also this question of getting the hostages out. But it's also a very, you know, there is a very crude issue here, which is that Hamas are going to seek higher prices for the men. They're going to particularly seek higher prices for uh, the military captives. That will be a much more difficult negotiation. The ratio of three Palestinian prisoners to one Israeli prisoner, you know, seems to a lot of us outside this conflict pretty grotesque to have this bartering for human lives. Uh, but that ratio of three to one is very low for what the Palestinians normally demand and certainly for what they demand for military captives. The last big hostage deal was actually back in 2011 when the Israelis released a 1,000 Palestinian prisoners for the return of one uh, young Israeli soldier. A lot of people have since regretted that decision, not because they didn't want him released, of course, but because that sheer number of Palestinians was very high and included senior figures like the man who is now head of Hamas in Gaza, Yahya Sinwar. So, you know, I don't think there's any way the Israelis are going to revert to that kind of ratio. So there's going to be a lot of very nasty haggling going on. So if that's the hostage and prisoner swap side of things, the other aspect, of course, of this ceasefire has been the fact that aid can actually get into Gaza during this pause in fighting. Do we know how successful that's been? Yeah, the UN reports on this make uh, sort of a mixed picture. You know, by no means enough aid has got in to meet the civilian needs of the population. The civilian needs are huge. You know, I think 75% of the population, 80% of the population is displaced from their homes. Hundreds of thousands of them are living in UN-run schools, uh, in the compounds of hospitals, in anywhere they can find. There, There have been, you know, several hundred aid trucks have gone in since the start of the ceasefire, which is obviously a relief but you know this is a very crowded territory that is not in any way self-sustaining in terms of even basic food supplies so it is used to having a constant flow of supply lorries going over the border uh, and that is not happening at the moment. Strategically how how difficult is a ceasefire for Israel by which I mean there are concerns that Hamas can be regrouping in this time. And also, is there a sense in which Israel can lose its momentum on the international stage? And 
when they return to the fighting, that might come as a bit of a shock to those in the West who are, who have been supporting Israel. Yeah, I think the second issue is more serious for Israel. I mean, there has been talk about Hamas regrouping. However, if you look at the numbers of Hamas dead, you know, it's not a particularly high number. The, the figures seem to range from one to four or five thousand um, out of a total strength of a, around 30,000. Amongst those, Israel have killed some of the uh, regional commanders, if you like, brigade commanders, but they've not taken out any of the top leadership. So I think the assumption has to be that before Israel even launched its ground offensive, or certainly as it got underway, Hamas moved much of its strength to the south of the Gaza Strip and have left behind Mm -hmm. a core of Hamas fighters to defend uh, that northern half, but that they are going to hide out and shelter under this enormous human shield, as the Israelis would put it, of a million and a half to two million civilians squeezed into the southern half of the enclave. So I think that was already done before the ceasefire from Hamas's point of view. Uh, But that does take you straight to that second point, which is that once these images begin again of Israeli jets wiping out apartment blocks because they think that Hamas is sheltering under them, that's going to renew the international pressure on Israel. It's Mm. particularly going to renew the pressure on President Biden, whose policy of backing Israel has been an unexpectedly unpopular thing with a large part of his Democratic Party and its uh, voter base. And that is putting pressure on him. If there's an election next year, that means he's putting pressure on the Israelis. Other allies are, you know, starting to call for coded words like proportionate response. They're basically saying, could you please kill less people as you take out the Hamas leadership? And and Israel is kind of wondering how on earth it can do that. So there is this huge strategic obstacle now in in the way of Israel, which is Mm. uh, what it feared when it agreed to a ceasefire. As things stand, Richard, um, very late Wednesday evening, around midnight Tel Aviv time, discussions are still ongoing as to whether this ceasefire will be extended. But when the fighting does start again, whenever that is, how quickly are we expecting Israel to return to what it was doing before? I think uh, you will see a bombardment begin immediately. We don't know exactly what their battle plan is, but it's uh, they can start pretty easily by just starting where they left off with the areas that they've surrounded but not taken in northern Gaza. I don't think they think there's any point in trying to pussyfoot around international opinion by going slowly. They may have and have agreed with the Americans some alternative plan for dealing with this mega issue of what they're going to do in the south. Coming up, the view on all of this from Gaza. We'll hear from a Times journalist there on the war, the ceasefire, Hamas and more. That's in a moment. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeeda Farsi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. So Richard has taken us through the view from the Israeli side, but how is all this being viewed in Gaza? Amal Halles is a Times journalist over the border from Richard. She's been watching all of this play out from the start, not only in her reporting, but also across her own life as well. Over the past week, one of our producers has been chatting to Amal. The internet is too unreliable for prolonged interviews, so Amal and our producer Olivia have been swapping voice notes. Hi, Amal, it's Olivia. Thank you so much for talking to us. Hi, Olivia. It's nice to meet you and it's my honour to uh, be with you. So if you could start by just introducing yourself. I'm Amal Hellas. I'm 29 years old. I'm a local journalist here in Gaza. I'm covering uh, the situation uh, especially in uh, the south because we cannot go to the north. I have two kids and I'm married. How are things there? What, what's it like? Since the beginning of the ceasefire, thousands of displaced people set off to their homes. Many were returning with their belongings loaded on the donkey and their pets and children in their arms. Some find their homes were destroyed. In the third day of the ceasefire, the situation is somewhat calm. There is movement of people in the streets and the crowding in the streets. There is anticipation for news uh, of the extension of the hudna. Uh, people are trying to buy the things they need. Many displaced people are buying winter clothes because the weather is getting colder. And most of the shops are open. Uh, there are uh, some canned food and vegetables available in the markets, but in small quantities. People are more able to charge their phones and batteries in schools or in hospitals, but still we have no electricity in our homes. So tell me a bit about your living situation now. Fortunately, I was not displaced from my house, but a large number of people displaced to our house more than 70 people uh, in the building. So you've got about 70 people who have moved from northern Gaza living in your house, is that right? If so, who are they? Our house consists of two floors. On the first floor, my husband's family and there are displaced people in their house, more than 70 people. My house in the second floor, about 15 people from my family also displaced, imagine this number of people present only in apartment 
We can hardly provide water. We uh, provide them hardly with food. We cannot provide all of them with mattresses. So some of them are sleeping in the blankets or in the carpet. Of course, there is no electricity and there are constantly uh, diseases such as cold, flu, uh, the water that we are able to provide is not drinkable, so it causes many diseases. Where's the water coming from? And what about the food? What kind of food are you all eating at the moment? We stand in long line for no less than three hours to get 10 liters of water, knowing that this water is not suitable for drinking. As for food, at the beginning of the war, uh, we relied on canned food, but it no longer exists as the stores have become empty of food and even salt is not available. People here relied on some of the rice, pasta and uh, lentils, the food they bought at the beginning of the war. I feel like we have gone back 100 years. I can't imagine how hard that must be, Amal. May I ask, are there any situations that lift you up, that bring you any sort of joy in, in the midst of all of this? Uh, despite the difficult situation and difficult days we live in, we try to create some happy moments in these uh, days. I become an aunt again. A beautiful baby girl actually came to us and added a new member to our family. We felt that she gave us joy and brought um, us happiness to compensate us a little for our fear and sadness since the beginning of the war. Amal, congratulations. That is such good news. Um, so this baby was born during the war then. So where was she born? And, you know, I, I hope she and her mum are okay. Like, what kind of medical care did they get? Uh, yes, she was born during the war, on the fifth day of the war in Gaza. On the day this little girl was born, it was a terrifying day. There was a heavy bombing on the city of Khan Yunis, and uh, her mother went uh, at night to hospital, and this in itself is a risk. With the fear of war, she gave birth prematurely in the eighth month. Uh, when she was born, the hospital situation was very disastrous. There were miscarriages. They are now displaced in a shelter center. Uh, the situation is very difficult. Imagine a little girl opening her eyes to life in war. How we wished that this child would not go through all of this. Oh, Amal, I'm sure, you know, we all feel exactly the same way. Um, no one wants a child to go through that. That's awful. Um, what's her name? Uh, because she was born uh, during the war, uh, we called uh, her Salam, which means peace. So let's talk about what you think life will look like after the war, because the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has said that Israel is going to be in charge of security in Gaza. So what do you think he means by that? Are you expecting the um, Israeli troops to stay? as long as the occupation continues. Clashes and resistance will continue. And this will recreate a continuous and permanent state of war in the Gaza Strip. This will not provide security for Gaza, Israel, or even the whole world. No one can decide what the form of government in the Gaza Strip will be. Israel refuses that the Palestinian Authority takes over Gaza 
and Hamas runs Gaza. Also, the Arab countries refuse to run Gaza. The world and NATO will not administer Gaza. The choice is either for Israel to withdraw and leave Gaza for the Palestinians to administer or for Israel to remain and the occupation to remain. This will not provide security, neither for Israel nor for Gaza. The solution is to end the entire occupation in the West Bank and Gaza, a peace agreement and the establishment of the unified Palestinian state in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. What do Gazans think of Hamas and has that opinion changed since the attacks that we saw on the 7th of October? Actually, uh, no one thinks now who is right and who is wrong. Everyone thinks about how to find shelter, how to find food. Everyone is angry with the occupation and everyone is angry with the Arab countries that don't support the Palestinian people. No one thinks about his opinion of Hamas. More from Amal in Gaza in a moment. Back on the Israeli side of things, what can Richard, Richard Spencer, our correspondent there, read in Israel's strategy in terms of trying to bring about a conclusion to this war? There's two aspects to Israel's strategy for Gaza. So the first is, you know, is the military objective of this campaign and what happens after. They were very clear that their military target was to eradicate Hamas if they are prepared to inflict enough civilian casualties and push this uh, all the way, they can try and take the whole strip as a military operation so that no Hamas continued rule there is possible. The question is, of course, then what comes next? And militarily, I think it's become fairly clear what Israel is thinking, uh, which is that it will maintain for a considerable period some sort of security control over the Gaza Strip. And the second thing is that they will... They're also fairly clear that they want security control like they have in the West Bank. So that involves still being able to send in troops and police to take out people who they feel are threats to them. The question of who runs Gaza, who actually ends up running Gaza, that's where we don't know what Israel is thinking. A lot of people, including America, have limited, put limits on what they will accept from Israel on that front. And that introduces a huge number of complications to the question of who's actually going to run Gaza. What else is is the US pushing for? Because, of course, they have enormous sway on this. Biden has been very clear. I mean, he's always been a supporter of the two-state solution. And he has been very clear that the long-term solution for Israel must now be to reopen the possibility of a formation of a Palestinian state in what is now Gaza and the West Bank together. And that is, if you like, the quid pro quo for his supporting Israel. Uh, that's, of course, what a lot of Israel's other backers, including Britain, say they want. They want a two-state solution that's in line with various UN resolutions. It's in line with the Arab Peace Initiative that Saudi Arabia proposed 20-odd years ago. That has become, started to look more and more unlikely over recent years mm. with the scale of Israeli settlements in the West Bank. So that's what America wants. How that is compatible with Israel's view of its own security, particularly in light of its, the way it handles its security in the West Bank, is another matter. And of course, at the moment, Benjamin Netanyahu seems relatively secure because 
a war is on and I guess people are sort of putting aside party politics for the moment to unite behind that. But there could be a point, say, you know, a year down the line that it's not him actually administering this. It is entirely true that Netanyahu has been very badly damaged by what happened on October the 7th. He was already holding together an incredibly shaky coalition of what remains of his own party and this far-right ultra-religious groupings who are unpopular with quite a lot of mainstream Israeli opinion. And that, you know, has led to huge protests against him. And then the concessions he he made to the far-right parties are seen in some way as connected to the security failings that led to the events of October the 7th. So, yes, he may well resign. But even if he does go, you know, that does not mean that the rightward shift in Israeli politics has come to an end. It doesn't mean that suddenly the old Israeli Labour Party, you know, comes back into power and, as Ehud Barak, the Labour Prime Minister, did in 2000, goes to Camp David to try and negotiate a two-state solution with the Palestinians. So there are still many obstacles in the path of what America and the West, Western allies of Israel want to see, even if Netanyahu falls and a more centrist Mm. government comes to power. And just finally, what of Hamas's strategy endgame on this? The long-term strategy of all the Islamist movements that oppose to Israel in the Middle East is deliberately ambiguous. Uh, Hamas is originally set up to oppose the state of Israel. So on the one hand, you have parts of the Hamas movement saying, yeah, we destroy Israel now and from the river to the sea, you know, we want a Palestinian state. And then you have others saying, no, no, we'd be, we'd be very willing to, to do a deal with Israel for a sort of permanent ceasefire. So there's a deliberate structural ambiguity there in, in the position of Hamas. Um, they have a strategy which, in concert with Iran, which sponsors so many of these resistance movements to Israel, that if you keep the pressure up on Israel over the years, eventually Israel will kind of implode under the weight of what they see as its own contradictions. But uh, in the immediate instance, it is now fighting for its survival. If it can survive, if its leadership can survive in southern Gaza, um, if Israel is pressured to call off this attack, Um, without major concessions by Hamas, for example, surrendering, surrendering its leaders, agreeing to leave Gaza and set themselves up somewhere else. If it can survive that, then it is hugely strengthened. So um, that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to hold out and, and, you know, win the war, which it will do by not losing the war, um, if you like. So the fighting will likely continue at some point. Back to Amal in Gaza and what she had to say to our producer, Olivia. Amal, I was wondering, would it be fair of us to ask your children what they want? I don't know if maybe you could ask them and we could record it and you could translate for us if you feel that's appropriate and they would be happy to do that. Chocolate, 
uh, she told me that she wants to go to her favorite places, uh, Floria restaurant, Kids Land. Um, she wants to get back to her school, uh, to see her teacher, to see her friends. And the most thing that she uh, told me about that she wants to go to the supermarket and buy the things that she loves, the chocolate she loves. Uh, the biscuits, and also the juice that she used to buy. Mm. And finally, what are you hoping for from the next few days? I hope uh, that there will be a permanent ceasefire to stop the war. I hope to get water easily. I wish we could go to our favorite places, to the restaurants we love with my children. I wish there was freedom to travel. I hope we go back to riding cars instead of cars, donkey cars. I hope we back to washing machine instead of, uh, of washing by our hands. I wish we could go out without fear. I wish I could communicate easily with my relatives and my friends. I miss going to the beauty salon. I miss family gatherings. I miss talking and staying up late. I hope that we don't hear the sound of aircraft and that we don't hear the sound of bombing. I hope there is a life of freedom, safety, love and peace. You have been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guests, Garzan journalist Amal Hellers and Richard Spencer, China correspondent but former Middle East correspondent for The Times, who's currently in Israel. You can find all of their work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Olivia Case, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Hannah Varrell. Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk is our email. Your reviews, comments, story suggestions are, of course, welcome anytime. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.